The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn with me in your New Testaments to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 will be starting our lesson there this evening. It's wonderful to be with you this evening. We certainly want to express our appreciation to our visitors. We want you to know that you are our honored guest, and we've been extremely encouraged and edified by your participation in worship. Philippians, the second chapter, in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I want us to especially note those two very familiar verses to us, verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul encouraged the brethren here to work out their own salvation, to take up their own responsibilities as people who have been called by the gospel to continually trust in God and submit to His Word according to that trust. And there they would receive the salvation of their souls. That's much to what the rest of the section we read has to do with, how they are to handle themselves as people of God in a crooked and perverse generation and how they're supposed to receive God's Word, not with complaining or disputing, but holding fast to it that they can rejoice and that he can rejoice in the day of Christ. But notice verse 13. The Apostle Paul gives them that responsibility in verse 12, but if it were all up to them, if they were by themselves in this, that would be pretty discouraging. But Paul says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The fact that God works in each individual toward their eternal salvation is a most comforting doctrine and it is certainly a key piece of the gospel of Christ. The whole point of Paul's writing in the book of Romans and also Galatians is that you cannot do it yourself. There's nothing that you can do that would earn your salvation. Chapter 4 of Romans demonstrates that if Abraham gained his salvation and justification by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God because that's impossible. God did not impute his trespasses to him because of his faith in God, and therefore, by God's grace, he was forgiven. There is nothing we can do to gain or earn our salvation. It's not to say that we don't have a part to play, but it is impossible without God. And so it's comforting to know that God's right there along with us. He's working out our salvation. He's working in us as we work out our own salvation this is imperative to understand in order to make it to heaven, in order to be successful in this spiritual life, to understand that it is God who works in you, to receive comfort from that, to receive courage and confidence in that. But it's only a false confidence if we don't know how he works in us. A lot of people think God is working in them, but because they're not submitting to the scripture, they're not adhering to the pattern of how God works in them. God is not at work in them. And that's a sad occasion we need to make sure we understand how it is that God works in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. 
I want us to first consider, though, that God has worked toward our salvation in the past, and he's still working. Consider what Jesus said in John, the fifth chapter, and in verse 17, when Jesus said to those people who accused him of sin by working on the Sabbath, he said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Noting that God may have rested on the seventh day, and that became the Sabbath, but he didn't really stop working totally. And he was even still at work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is working as well, according to his father's will. But I want us to notice that God has been working until now. He's been working all the while. In fact, in Ephesians chapter three and verse 11, the apostle Paul noted an eternal purpose of God. And he's accomplished that past tense in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That eternal component of the purpose of God is noted also in the first chapter of Ephesians in verse 4, when in the spiritual blessings enumerated by Paul in Christ, he says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I think it's comforting to know that God has been working even in eternity. That's something we can't comprehend. Before time even began, God was working and he was working according to this eternal purpose. He was working to effect our salvation. And so it's very understanding that the Apostle Paul stresses that that eternal salvation, that eternal purpose that was in Christ Jesus and accomplished in Christ Jesus is therefore applied to individuals in Christ Jesus. He chose us in him. That's not an individual predestination, but a predestination of location, if you will. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 indicates that in him, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God's done that. He has brought forth Christ and he has accomplished that eternal purpose in him. As chapter 3 and verse 11 indicates. In the first gospel sermon, Peter noted this in verse 23 of Acts 2. He said, him, that is Christ or Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's a reference to this eternal purpose, this foreordination before the foundation of the world. Before the world began, God determined that Christ would die and being delivered by that determined purpose. The Jews had taken by lawless pans, crucified him and put him to death, whom God has raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And when he was released from death, God raised him up, verse 32, of which we are all witnesses. And he concludes in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I want us to notice the past tense of those words. He was crucified. He was buried. God raised him from the dead. God seated him at his right hand. Colossians 2 and verse 12 indicates that that was according to the working of God who raised him from the dead. The spirit of holiness was involved in this. Romans 1 and verse 4, as he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. God has worked toward our salvation. In Hebrews the 10th chapter, we stress that God has worked, past tense. In verse 5 of Hebrews 10, after indicating that salvation could not be brought about by the blood of bulls and goats, those things of animals, he quotes from the Old Testament. Therefore, when he said, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And notice in verse 10, the application, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That phrase, once for all, is one Greek word, ephapax. 
And hapax is the Greek word which indicates perpetual validity, that is, not requiring repetition. And ep or epi is the strengthening prefix. And so it's a strengthened form of something that was already a perpetual validity. It only had to happen once, and that was efficacious throughout the rest of time. There doesn't need to be another sacrifice. God has worked toward our salvation. But even though God has accomplished, past tense, what He needed to accomplish, and He alone could accomplish for us to have the hope of salvation, He's continuing to work today. Notice what the Apostle Paul said in the beginning verses of the epistle to the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 6. He says that he's confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What we understand here is that what God has done in the past is of utmost importance if we are to even have a hope of salvation It was only the sacrifice of Christ predetermined by God's will and carried out by the Son of God and His resurrection by God from the dead and His being seated at the right hand of the throne of God where He entered the true holiest of all with the blood, not of bulls and goats, but His own blood that He has given as an offering for sin once for all. Not only is that necessary and we can't obtain salvation without what God has done, but even if we come into contact with those benefits in Christ's death, If we go along and God is not with us, we cannot get to heaven. It is impossible. He must complete that work that he started. It begins and ends with the almighty power of God. That is why in Philippians 2 and verse 13, after noting that they had a part, work out your own salvation, he encouraged them that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He has worked, but he has not stopped working. And thanks be to God that that is the case. For without that work that he continues to do, we'd have no hope. We'd have no sustaining power. But it's important to ask the question, how is it that God works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure? You know, there's a lot of people who have some thoughts about that. And some suggest that he works in us in a miraculous way direct operation on the heart by his Holy Spirit. And he does that because we as man are totally depraved. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith, that standard that was initially adapted by the Baptist Church to demonstrate what they believed, says from this original corruption, that is the sin of Adam, that is the original sin, from this original corruption, whereby all are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. In other words... That takes any responsibility and fault away from each individual. They would not suggest that, but that's the logical end to that concept and that suggestion. The reason we sin is solely because Adam sinned and thus our nature is corrupted, having inherited his ill-advised decisions and his transgression before God. And so we are utterly, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, wholly inclined to all evil. How does a person like that come to salvation? They can't even desire the salvation. And so some would suggest God works in us who are utterly disposed to all evil. And God works in us by a miraculous surgery, if you will, of our heart. Consider this quotation from a work that was titled The Five Points of Calvinism Defined, Defended, and Documented. Two Calvinists 
suggests that the Holy Spirit, in order to bring God's elect to salvation, extends to them a special inward call in addition to the outward call contained in the gospel message. Through this special call, the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace within the sinner, which inevitably brings him to faith in Christ. Although the general outward call of the gospel can be and often is rejected, the special inward call of the Spirit never fails to result in the conversion of those to whom it is made. We've got to start grasping some of the logical implications of false doctrines that those false teachers don't grasp. They don't deny that God gives a call in the gospel message that can be accepted or rejected. But what they do suggest is that because that has the potential for impotence in the life of the one called by it, then God gives a special inward call that is not able to be refused. That's the tenet of Calvinism, which is irresistible grace. You could have no interest whatsoever in gospel truth or salvation And if God has predetermined to save you individually, you will be saved. You could be the most evil man who has ever existed. You'll be saved if you're of the elect. You may not have any interest in what the gospel says, and you may shut up by death everyone who preaches the gospel. But if God chose you, you cannot resist that miraculous operation of the Spirit on your heart. That conversion inwardly is irresistible. They would suggest that we see the example and the proof of total hereditary depravity where an individual has no good whatsoever inside of him. And the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 in verse 21 and following, really the whole chapter. But in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says of himself in the present tense, he's speaking of his past self without Christ in the present tense to illustrate the point of one state under the law without Christ. He says, I find then a law in Romans 7, 21, that evil is present with me the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Someone says, see, that is the definition of total hereditary depravity. But remember what the definition was that was given in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith by those who are Calvinistic in their thinking. Those who are inheriting the original sin of Adam are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. And from that proceeds actual transgressions. But did you notice some interesting things that the Apostle Paul mentioned there in Romans 7 and verses 21 through 24? He says, I will to do good. He says that I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. There's no total hereditary depravity. In Romans chapter 7, there's the opposite of that. There's an individual who wants to do good. He wants salvation. He wants to be right in the sight of God, but he's under the grasp of sin. And without forgiveness of sin, without the remission of sins, and without the regenerating power of the gospel of Christ and his precious blood, then he cannot stand just before God. That's what he's saying. I need help. And he concludes with that in verse 25. I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. What they would do is suggest that there are some examples in the New Testament of that direct working of the Holy Spirit that is necessary miraculously for a person to even have any kind of semblance of desire, if desire at all, to have an inward change. And one of the ways that they'll try to prove that is by the example of Lydia. Remember, we are studying from Philippians 2 and verses 12 and 13 
where God is working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In Acts, the 16th chapter, we see the beginning of the church in Philippi. And in Philippians 1 and verse 6, it says, God began a good work in them. And Paul is confident that he'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, notice in Acts, the 16th chapter in verse 11, after the Macedonian call, therefore sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. What they'll do is they'll key in on that phrase. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Without the Lord opening her heart, and they'll suggest that that's by a direct miraculous operation, she would not have been able to even see a value in the gospel truth that was presented to her. She was utterly indisposed. She was inclined to all evil and separate from all good. She was totally depraved because of Adam's sin. So the Lord had to operate miraculously on her heart. But was that? The indication of Luke's record in Acts chapter 16, that God opened her heart miraculously? I don't think so, and we'll seek to demonstrate that. I want us to consider firstly how God works in us with our beginning text of Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, the apostle Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Firstly, we need to understand that God works in you. God works in me. God works in us as individuals toward our salvation's realization in conjunction with us. God is at work in those who are working out their salvation. You might have heard the phrase from time to time that God only helps those who help themselves. And while that's not a quotation of Scripture, it's certainly a scriptural principle. God can't help the person who does not want to help themselves. God can't help the person who has no interest in spiritual truth. God can't help the person who is blinded to the gospel by the God of this world. Second Corinthians chapter 4 indicates that many are blinded by Satan. God is at work in those who are working out their salvation. And we see that in Lydia initially. I want us to notice in Acts the 16th chapter some of the words that are used by Luke to demonstrate and record the actions of Lydia. It says that a certain woman named Lydia heard us. Who heard us? She heard us. And the Lord opened her heart to heed. Who heeded? Lydia heeded the things spoken by Paul. And then when she was baptized, when she and her household were baptized, she did that. She begged us saying, and I want us to especially notice this. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. This was a personal responsibility for Lydia. The Apostle Paul had the responsibility to preach the gospel, but she had the responsibility to hear it, believe it, and obey it. She was faithful, and she knew that, that she had that responsibility. You know, if it was that the Lord opened her heart miraculously, that she couldn't have done anything within her own willpower, that she had to have God do it all, then what about these other women? In Acts chapter 16 and verse 13, it indicates that they went down to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. Evidently in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. 
And they sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Women is more than one woman. Lydia was only one of them, but it indicates that Lydia and her household were saved by the gospel. What about those other women? A Calvinist would suggest that Lydia and her household, they were the only ones that were elect of God. But that whole concept of individual predestination without any of our desire or will is contrary to very fundamental principles in Scripture. Not only does John 3.16 says God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, but we see other passages as well. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord isn't slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Was God more willing that Lydia would be saved than these other women? I don't think so, not at all. Initially, Lydia was ultimately responsible for her salvation, as is the case of the next convert in Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer asked the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's my responsibility. You've got to tell me the truth, but it's my responsibility. And it's not only initially the case, but it's continually the case. God works in us in conjunction with our willingness to work out our own salvation, not just at the beginning as per Lydia and the Philippian jailer and all other examples of conversion, but continually. God is able to complete that work He started in us, but we must work out our own salvation. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, the Apostle Peter encourages to take up that own responsibility of theirs as individuals. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second John 8 says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Look to who? Look to yourselves that you don't lose that. Hebrews 10 and verse 39 encourages, after quoting from Habakkuk 2, we are not of those who draw to perdition draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. From start to finish, God is working in an individual towards salvation, but from start to finish, that individual must be working as well. But how does He work in us toward salvation? I would suggest to you that the Bible is very clear He does this through His holy and divinely inspired Word. And I want us to notice this first before getting back to the context of Lydia and Philippi. I want us to notice where the Apostle Paul and his travel companions proceeded to go in the 17th chapter. After Lydia and the jailer were converted along with their households, in Acts 16.40 it says, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Verse 17, verse 1 of chapter 17 picks up. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the, third, from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to 
the people. I want us to notice verse 4 and verse 5. Some of them were persuaded. Verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded caused that uproar and that mob and all the violence that was there. I want us to consider something with Lydia, also keeping in mind what happened in Thessalonica, that yes, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. But what is true for Lydia and her salvation must be true for the jailer and his salvation. It must be true for those who join Paul and Silas in chapter 17. It must be true for those who are labeled by the uh, the writer Luke as more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, the Bereans who search the scriptures daily and find out to find out whether the things Paul and Silas preached were so. If God saves one person in a certain way, he must save another person in a certain way. This is the conclusion reached by those who were inspired in Acts the 15th chapter with the Jerusalem Council when there was the discussion of whether or not an individual had to keep the law and be circumcised to be saved. And the Holy Spirit established through divine command, approved example, and necessary implication that it's always been God's will that men would be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus And it was concluded there in verse 11, as they talked about the Gentiles that were saved by faith, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Everyone is saved the exact same if they're saved at all. In Philippi, God worked in Lydia toward her salvation by opening her heart. I would suggest to you that the same thing happened with the Thessalonians, although it does not indicate so in the same language. But notice what it does indicate. The Apostle Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained to them and demonstrated to them that this Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and they were then persuaded. The Lord opened Lydia's heart, but in Thessalonica, Paul reasoned with them from a divine standard. He explained some things that they did not have an understanding about. He made demonstrations to them by the truth that they understood in this new message that they weren't as familiar with. And he persuaded some of them by that holy message. Consider the epistle to the Thessalonians, much like the epistle to the Philippians makes reference to their initial salvation and the fact that God is continually working in them, not just leaving them alone after they were saved, but continually affecting in them salvation. And how did he do it? 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5 says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us in the Lord. How? Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, He continues in chapter 2 and verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. When Paul and Silas were reasoning with them, when they were explaining to them, from the scriptures and demonstrating to them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. They were preaching the gospel to them, a message that they became assured of that they were understanding was not from men. And the apostle Paul indicates that in verse 13 of first Thessalonians chapter two, for this reason, he says, we also thank God without ceasing 
Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. I want us to notice that. They received it as the word of God, which effectively works in them. If it is effectively working in them who believe now, then it was effectively working in them in their initial salvation when Paul preached it to them and they were persuaded. I want us to notice this, that this indicates God is working in them through the word. The word of God effectively works in you. You know, we refer to literary masterpieces as so-and-so's work. They put this together. They wrote this story. They did this study and they published it. It's, it's their work. Well, God's work, his dissertation on salvation, if you will, his divine revelation is the gospel of Christ. It is the work of God and it is working in them, which indicates God is working in them. The instrumentality of his effective working is the gospel. And you know what? Their hearts were open to. When Acts 17 says that they were persuaded, that's just a synonym for God opened their hearts. Consider in Luke 24 and verse 44, after Jesus was raised and he was continuing with his disciples for 40 days, in verse 44 of Luke 24, he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Earlier on the road to Emmaus, Jesus spoke with some disciples and said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. How do you expound to someone? How do you demonstrate to someone the revelation and its fulfillment of prophecy? You do that through a study of God's word and a proclamation of it. That's exactly what was happening. He opened their understanding. And in that way, he opened the hearts of those in Thessalonica. And in that way, he opened the heart of Lydia. I want us to consider what happens there in Acts 16. In verse 14, it says, A certain woman named Lydia heard us. She heard Paul preach. And what did she hear from Paul? In verse 10, after the Macedonian call in that vision of Paul where he determined that they would go to Macedonia, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Why? Concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. She heard the gospel being preached. And after it states that she heard the gospel being preached, it then states that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by the Apostle Paul. That word heed is important. It's the Greek word prosecho, and it means to hold the mind towards, that is pay attention to. But I want us to understand that while that is certainly the literal meaning, as many words indicate, in their own context, slightly different meanings, a a more specific meaning. So it does in this context. She had already been holding her mind towards and paying attention to what was spoken. That's what it said back in verse 14. She heard what was being spoken. 
And I want us to notice also in verse 15, when it says that the Lord opened her heart, or verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. What is spoken and what is heard in the first part of that verse are the same. This heeding is something in addition to her paying attention to the gospel, as Thayer indicates in his more specific definition in certain contexts. It means to apply oneself to, to attach oneself to, to hold or cleave to a person or thing. She heeded the thing spoken by obeying what was spoken. As it says in verse 15, when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Judge me to be faithful in what way? I was heeding what was spoken by applying it to myself, implying myself to it by being baptized according to the message spoken. She was certainly persuaded like the Thessalonians. Her heart was opened in that her understanding was open. And her understanding was opened and verified by her willingness to do the things that were spoken to her. It is quite obvious in Scripture and all the conversion accounts and in every facet of salvation that is recorded in the New Testament that God works toward our salvation initially and continually through His Word. There is never an indication in Scripture that God works toward our salvation in any other way. He does it through His powerful Word. Romans, the first chapter in verse 16, this is what the Apostle Paul stated, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The word power there is the same word which is used for miracles throughout the New Testament. Dunamis. God's power displayed in miracles was a wondrous thing to behold. But it's called a sign for a reason. And I would assert to you that all miracles are signs. They signify something. They had a divine purpose. They weren't just to be thrown out there for no reason. But miracles signified, and with Jesus' performance of miracles, it signified that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that therefore He has the bread of life, as we see in John chapter 6. In another place, he healed a lame man, telling him to take up his bed, rise and walk. And he said before he told that man to get up and walk and perform that miracle, that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your bed, rise and walk. That word there is authority. It's exosia. So you know I have the authority to forgive sins. I'll demonstrate that by this miraculous power. And so many individuals get so caught up in Miracles. They get so caught up in this divine intervention in miraculous ways and they forget the whole purpose of miracles in the first place. And also, they fail to realize that the power that worked those miracles, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power, dunamis, like dynamite, is available in the gospel. There's a common... And famous saying that is used all the time, the pen is mightier than the sword. I want to tell you that it's more powerful for an individual to get someone to do something by appealing to their free will, their intellect, and their motivation with a compelling message of love and of forgiveness and power than it is to just grab their head and stuff it in the trough, making them drink the water. 
There's a lot of people in power today in the world who think that they are so powerful, but they're forcing all the people to do whatever it is they're doing. There's no freedom there. But what's more powerful than that is a message spoken to an individual who hears its value, who hears what it appeals to, and out of their free will does what it says. God's power to salvation is in a message, but not any message, the message of the cross. It is impossible to please God without faith, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is through God's word that we are saved. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the apostle or the the Hebrew writer noticed that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God can cut through any facade. It can cut through any preconceived notion. It can cut right through the soul. And it can make an individual who truly desires salvation obey it and receive that salvation. In James 1 and verse 18, after noting that everything that is good and perfect comes from God, the greatest gift of all is that of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. That was the power of God toward our salvation initially. And He continues in verse 21 of the same chapter to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He brought you forth, your new creature, by the word of truth. That's the newness of life. Your sins have been washed away by the power of Christ's blood, accessed in the gospel by faith. But you're not completely saved yet. So receive God's word, which is able to save your souls. And in that way, God is working in you. But what is he working in you to do? Certainly to bring about your salvation. But did you notice there those two things that he mentioned in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13? It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I want us to understand that God works in us through his word to cause us to desire to do his will, to will. It's incentive. Why would we ever do the things the gospel tells us to do? There's great motivation for it. The message of the cross urges us. It compels us. It draws us. As Second Peter chapter 1 indicates, we are called by His glory and virtue. It's an extremely attractive message, full of incentive to follow it. Sometimes negative, sometimes positive. In Philippians 2 and verse 12, we see a negative. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You better have a reverence for God, but not simply a reverence. You better have phobia of God. That's a Greek word, phobos. You better be afraid of what will happen if you don't work out your own salvation. As Hebrews 9, 27 says, it's appointed for men to die once and after this, the judgment. And in chapter 10 and verse 31, he indicates it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We do what we do as Christians because we have a deep-seated motivation in the understanding of the reality of judgment in the end. Everything we do will be judged. But you know, I think we also follow the gospel because we just want a better life, even here. First Timothy chapter four and verse eight, the apostle writes to the young evangelist that God bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. The scripture is filled with examples of this truth. 
that when people follow the gospel, while it's certainly true and indicated by the Holy Spirit that they will suffer persecution, they certainly avoid much evil in their life. They avoid much heartache. They avoid unnecessary adversity, which people bring upon themselves and their own transgressions and sinful lives. There's an appeal to the gospel, something that is virtuous and something that is valuable even for this life, as fleeting as it may be in its ephemeral nature, there's something to gain even here by following the gospel. We work out our salvation because God makes us will through the love of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul writes, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. When someone does something for us, especially to the degree of sacrificial nature, whether it's their own body and life or just something that is something we understand has value in this life, we want to reciprocate. We have a motivation. We might have never thought of doing something for them, but since they showed love toward us and did something great for us, we're willing to reciprocate. We want to. We'd feel bad for not doing it. The love of Christ compels us to do His will. And we do His will because we have the incentive of being transformed into the image of Christ. In First John 3 and verse 2, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Why do you avoid the pleasures that we get to involve ourselves in, the world might ask? And they think it's strange that we don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation and they speak evil of us, First Peter chapter 4. Well, we don't want to do that because we know that's fleeting. We know that's not lasting. But the image of Christ is. It's glorious. It's wonderful. And we are children of God, but even though we're children of God, we haven't fully realized that. This is not our glorious body. We want something better. This is merely a tent. And to get that, we have to purify ourselves just as He is pure. And lastly, and related to that, God works in us to will for His good pleasure because we have the desire for heaven as God promises it to us. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul indicated all of these things he counted as rubbish, as trash, that he might gain Christ. But even though he gained Christ in that sense of his initial salvation and growing in fellowship with him and being transformed as he purifies himself on this earth into that same image from glory to glory, he did not yet attain that resurrection body. That's why he says in verse 12 of Philippians 3, I have not already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things that are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus our Lord. He mentions enemies of the cross who set their minds on earthly things and says we don't do that for our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. We don't belong here, and so we will to do His will. 
Our citizenship is somewhere else. We long for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the same city that Abraham left Ur the Chaldeans to find. And he continually trusted in God throughout his life, living by faith because he wanted that as an inhabitant, as a habitation. He wanted heaven. And so he followed God faithfully in obedience. He works in us to will. Yes, he gives us incentive but it doesn't matter how much incentive we have if we don't have direction. So he works in us to do. He gives us instruction on what to do. Galatians 5 in verse 16 says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The Spirit reveals God's Word. It is the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, that is. And when He reveals divine truth... We walk in it. How do we know how to get to that state where we don't have to fear judgment? How do we have a better life? How do we reciprocate that love to Christ? How do we become transformed into the image of Christ? And how are we going to make it to heaven as we press on? We walk after the Spirit, not after the lust of the flesh as he enumerates, but after the fruit of the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, verse 25, let us walk in the Spirit. He works in us to do through His Word. As 2 Timothy 3.16 indicates that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Notice this, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is lacking? What do we need? We've got it all in the Gospel of Christ. He tells us everything we need to do, everything we must do in the pages of inspired scripture. Yes, God is working in us and thanks be to God that he is working in us because if he wasn't working in us, we'd have no hope. But he works in us through his word. He gives us incentive through his holy message so that we want to do his will and we grow in doing his will. His commandments, 1 John 5, 3, are not burdensome. We know that they work in us toward our salvation by the power of God. And so we follow everything that he instructs us to follow. I want us to leave with a warning from 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19 through 24 as the Apostle Paul mentioned that the Word of God works effectively in you who believe. So he concludes that epistle. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. He's speaking of inspired Scripture. Don't despise it. Don't quench it. Don't put that fire out that God has provided. And then he concludes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and also will do it. But he can't do it if you despise prophecies and if you quench the spirit. It is God who works in you, but he does it through his inspired message. And we must be willing to follow it always. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel of Christ, we extend the invitation to you to have your heart open. Come to an understanding. Come to a realization you're lost in sin. And as Lydia did, obey that gospel by being baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have obeyed the gospel in some, and in some way you've fallen short or you need some kind of aid spiritually, we invite you as well to come forward as we stand and sing the song that was selected.